the United Nations Treaty to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Naysaying experts said that it would never work, it would never pass, the nine nuclear nations will never give up their nuclear weapons, and to think they might was delusional. But then the treaty gets passed by 122 of those United Nations, and then it gets its 50th ratification on October 24, 2020. It gained force of law as of January 22, 2021. And while the nuclear bully states insist it will have no influence on their policies, you hear from someone who has worked directly on passage of this groundbreaking international treaty and who understands how these things work. And they tell you... We have seen this work with, for example, the Landmines Treaty, which the United States has still not ratified, and yet the U.S. under Obama declared that it would stop using landmines other than in the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea, and it stopped selling landmines. It stopped manufacturing and selling cluster bombs as well, even though it's never ratified that treaty. So we can see the ways that over time, the stigmatization impacts that international law has, even on countries that refuse to be bound by the treaty are still very, very impactful. Well, when you realize that stigmatizing nuclear weapons under international law has the power to galvanize action against them, even in countries that don't sign on to the UN treaty, you catch a glimmer of hope that there just might be a way out of that deadly, uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine bringing you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we mark the second anniversary of the ratification of the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and revisit an interview we recorded immediately after its passage with Ray Acheson. They are Director of Disarmament at the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which is the world's oldest feminist peace organization. After the interview, we'll bring you up to date on the progress the TPNW has made over the past two years. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Linda Pence-Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than is being heard anywhere on the campaign trail of candidates in the U.S. midterm elections. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 18, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting in Ukraine, where for the third time in the last 10 days, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant's connection to its power line was lost 
and had to rely on backup emergency diesel generators. That makes at least five times the nuclear reactors have been disconnected from the power source since the start of the war in February. The power is required to keep necessary cooling and safety operations in place, without which there will be a meltdown. While in the most recent instance, the backup diesel power was only on for about 10 minutes before alternative off-site power was connected, as nuclear engineer Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education has stated on this program and elsewhere, diesels are not designed to be frequently turned on and off, and these were previously acknowledged to be in need of replacement. The skill of the Zaporizhia Maintenance Department, all of whom is Ukrainian, is to be commended. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission echoes his concerns by saying, rapid acceleration and loading without pre-lubrication and warm-up may result in premature diesel engine degradation. Also, it is not known with this repeated use of the diesel generators whether the diesel fuel that has been used has been replaced or not. It seems the ability to avoid a nuclear holocaust there is based on luck. So when it comes to nuclear, are we all just a bunch of lucky fools? Linda Pence-Gunter asks the question in Shakespearean terms on this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Lord, what fools these mortals be, exclaims the sprite Puck in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. What fools indeed, and perhaps undeservedly lucky ones too. Despite playing with nuclear fire for 80 years, we have not all been vaporized in a nuclear holocaust. But we have done damage with both nuclear weapons and nuclear power. A lot of damage. This blind persistence with both technologies begs the question that Puck implied. Why are we so foolish? Most of us do not want to perish in a nuclear war. Most of us do not want to flee forever from our homeland because of a nuclear reactor meltdown. Most of us don't want to be embroiled in any kind of a war. And yet, we continue to rely on leaders who invariably do the wrong thing, and on a few individuals to do the right thing and save us from ourselves. Those wrong things include the decades of atomic testing, sometimes on people far from the centre of power, or mostly on people in other countries than those of the perpetrators, indigenous peoples living in harmony with nature, the land and water. Those wrong things include waging pointless wars, usually for power and energy rights, but often under the guise of religion or other false doctrines. Those wrong things include promoting and assigning billions of dollars to the continued and expanded use of nuclear energy, even though it has demonstrated time and again that the outcome of a major accident is an unacceptable violation of human rights and that the financial price of nuclear power starves us of the kinds of social services that should be the norm. But what of those who make the right choices? Ironically, two of the most famous individuals, known as the man who saved the world, were Russians. The first to save us was naval commander Vasily Akhipov, who happened to be on board a Russian B-59 nuclear submarine spotted by the US Navy off the Cuban coast during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. The sub's captain, who could not reach Moscow, feared that the US ship's insistence he surface meant that nuclear war had begun. He wanted to fire a nuclear missile at the US ship instead. On most such subs, the decision would have been his. But a B-59 required the OK from the fleet commander. Arhipov talked him down and prevented World War III, a war that would have ended that sequence of numbers. 
1983, it was Stanislav Petrov who saved us. Petrov was a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Union's air defense forces who, on the night of September 26, just happened to be in charge of monitoring his country's satellite system that watched for a potential launch of nuclear weapons by the United States. In the early hours, such a launch appeared to have happened. Petrov had only minutes to decide if the launch was genuine. He was supposed to report the alert up the chain of command. Doing so would almost certainly have led to a counter-strike, triggering a full-on nuclear exchange between the Soviet Union and the US. But it didn't look right to Petrov. He hesitated, then did nothing and went to check the computer systems. It was indeed a computer error. For now they kill me with a living death, said Shakespeare's Richard III. That's our fate if we use nuclear weapons again. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. In Missouri, in St. Louis County, radioactive contamination has been found at Jana Elementary School, based on samples taken in August. This according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The school sits in the floodplain of Coldwater Creek, which was contaminated by nuclear waste from weapons produced during World War II. The waste was dumped at sites near the St. Louis Lambert International Airport next to the creek that flows to the Missouri River. Dust samples taken inside the school were found to be contaminated with levels of radioactive isotope lead to 10, polonium, radium, and other toxins that were, quote, far in excess of what had been expected. Now, in a late-breaking update, the Hazelwood School District announced that the school will close and students will switch to virtual learning for the remainder of the current semester. The Army Corps of Engineers has been working on cleanup of the creek and environs for the past 20 years, and clearly there's still much more to be done. We'll be linking to other stories on how easy is it to get the material to make dirty bombs? Very, says a report. America's nuclear fears surged to highest levels since Cold War. And Harvey Wasserman's article, Nuclear Power Isn't Clean. It Creates Hellish Wastelands of Radioactive Sewage. Over to Japan, where outrage is growing over Tokyo Electric Power, exaggerating the safety of treated nuclear wastewater with a dosimeter that fails to detect the exact radioactive substances that are supposed to be in it. This story was last week's numbnuts, but it's far more serious than that as TEPCO continues to try and fool the Japanese public into agreeing to this release of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. And Mainichi, Japan's oldest daily newspaper, published an editorial entitled Japan's push to extend nuclear reactor life past 40 years doesn't add up. Among the arguments from the electricity sector and industry ministers hoping to extend the reactor's operational life comes the argument... 40 years is just a guideline with no clear scientific basis. That is a lie because it ignores the fact that when nuclear reactors were first designed, the engineers all stated that operating them beyond 40 years would be dangerous because of the degradation and embrittlement of the metal in the reactors, which could lead to dangerous accidents. 
and the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights of Internally Displaced Persons has urged the Japanese government to give unqualified human rights and needs-based support to the more than 30,000 people still displaced 11 years after the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, making no distinction between evacuees on the basis of whether their displacement was motivated by fear of the effects of the disaster or due to a mandatory evacuation order. In France, EDF, that country's energy giant, has extended outages at five French nuclear reactors and maintenance on eight others have been delayed by a strike. French nuclear availability is currently at only 51% of total capacity, with 26 reactors offline, at least 15 of them for corrosion analysis or repairs. The problems are expected to persist well into next year. In Czechoslovakia, the Dukovny Nuclear Power Plant Unit 2 has been disconnected from the grid, with no indication of how long this unplanned outage will continue. Hong Kong has opted to follow mainland China on regulations on Japanese imports if the radioactive water from the Fukushima nuclear disaster is released into the Pacific. Greece hit a major energy milestone on October 7 when renewable energy met all of the country's electricity needs for the first time ever. And now, for some nuclear boneheadedness. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Swedish youth activist Greta Thunberg is proving herself not to be a friend of those who oppose nuclear. She recently argued against taking Germany's remaining nuclear power plants offline, saying during an interview on German public television, I personally think it's a very bad idea to focus on coal when nuclear power is already in place. Germany has already said that they are going to be turning off the two nukes but holding them in reserve just in case they are needed during this winter season. Thunberg previously stated that nuclear is dangerous, expensive, and time-consuming. That's a direct quote. So Greta, what's going on here? How about reversing your reversal and getting back in line with what's wrong with nuclear and why it should not be used, except perhaps this winter in an emergency situation in Germany? Your statement is being taken out of context and being used by far-right-wing pro-nukers as evidence that even environmentalists such as yourself are coming over to their side. I don't believe that's true, or is it? Until we hear a clarifying statement from you, Greta, realize that you've just qualified as this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, nuclear weapons, manufacturing, reactors, uranium mining, radioactive waste, accidents, permissible, put that in quotes, radiation exposures, the list of nuclear dangers and disasters is as endless as plutonium, which remains dangerously radioactive for 240,000 years. Yet despite the known risks, the nuclear industry perpetuates itself, making obscene amounts of money and undermining genuine renewables while threatening the future of the planet and of life itself. That is why you need nuclear hot seat to help you know and understand what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We cover not only what the industry is doing, but how brave activists around the world are fighting back, and how any one of us, yes, even you, can take action to try to stop the nuclear madness. Now in its 12th year, 
Nuclear Hot Seat is the only podcast where you can reliably get a one-hour hit of honest nuclear information, including interviews with genuine experts and frontline activists, international news, numbnuts of the week, and the hot story. We bring you the stories and insights that the nukesters and their political minions would rather you not know. But in order to continue to do this work, we need your help. I'll be honest, current economics have dangerously cut into donations, and what's coming in does not cover the amount that's going out every month. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation, any amount that you can. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and be it $5 or $500, a monthly recurring donation of as little as $5, whatever you can do, it's a big help. So if you value Nuclear Hot Seat and want to help us continue, please do what you can now. And know that I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Two years ago, on October 24, 2020, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons received its 50th ratification, meaning that three months later, on January 31st of 2021, it would take on force of law. In honor of that momentous anniversary, we are revisiting an interview done at that time with organizer, activist, and writer Ray Atchison. Ray is Director of Disarmament of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, otherwise known as WILP, which is the world's oldest feminist peace organization. Atchison also serves on the steering group of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, which won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize for its work to ban nuclear weapons. Atchison is the author of Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy, which offers a first-hand account about the work of activists and diplomats to outlaw nuclear weapons and challenge the nuclear orthodoxy. She also wrote this year's Abolishing State Violence, A World Beyond Bombs, Borders, and Cages, which analyzes the connection between police, prisons, surveillance, borders, war, nuclear weapons, and capitalism, and highlights the ongoing organizing efforts for their abolition. We spoke with Ray Atchison on October 30, 2020 which was immediately after the TPNW received its 50th ratification and was about to take on force of law. I'll bring you up to date with what's happened with the treaty in the past two years after the interview. Ray Atchison, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much. Let's start out with a little bit about you. What is your background and how did you get into working on nuclear issues? Right now, I'm with the Reaching Critical Will program of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. WILP is over a century old. It was founded in 1915 during World War I. And I've been with WILP for the last 15 years working on Reaching Critical Will, which is the disarmament program. Before that, I was doing some work with a woman named Randy Forsberg, who was a leader in the nuclear freeze movement back in the 1980s. And I worked at a little organization that she ran. And before that, was doing a degree in peace and conflict studies at the University of Toronto. So I've always been interested in social justice, peace, conflict, and sort of got into nuclear weapons work through meeting Randy and wanting to be part of the activist tradition that had been challenging these weapons for decades. 
Where did the idea for a treaty through the United Nations first come from? How far back does that idea go? Well, there's been the pursuit of a treaty at the UN for a very long time, or, or a treaty between the nuclear armed states to get them to negotiate multilaterally with each other. But this idea of pursuing a treaty that would only be negotiated or primarily be negotiated and championed by the non-nuclear armed states is a more recent idea. And it comes from the decades of frustration of the nuclear armed states not only not engaging in disarmament, but actively re-engaging in investments in their arsenals and building up the capacity of their nuclear weapons. And so that sort of came out of the last cycle of meetings around the Non-Proliferation Treaty in 2010 and looking at then under the Obama administration, the rhetoric for disarmament that was not matched by actual policies or practices and looking at, from that time on, the lack of engagement by the nuclear armed states and the deliberate walking back of all of their commitments over years that they'd made. So it was partly because of that, but it was also in part because of the lessons that we learned from the banning of landmines and cluster bombs, which were both done through treaties, not at the United Nations, but through interested states that were really concerned about the humanitarian effects that these weapons were having on civilians around the world. And so the knowledge and the community that was built up through prohibiting those weapons um, was then deployed again against nuclear weapons. What were the groups and who were the people who came together in 2010 to start this process moving forward? Well, it was a collection of the governments that had worked on the processes to ban landmines and cluster bombs. So countries that you can see now are part of the core group on banning nuclear weapons, which include Austria and Ireland, South Africa, Nigeria, Brazil and Mexico, along with New Zealand, Thailand and a few other countries um, that have been really actively engaged on this issue, mostly leaders from Latin America and the Caribbean, Southeast Asia, Africa, these are the countries and regions of the world that have really been champions of what we call humanitarian disarmament in the past. So it was a matter of bringing those countries together that we knew had practice and knowledge and community building on these issues together with activists from the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, which had been founded in 2007 to pursue nuclear disarmament, but really coalesced around this idea of a treaty banning nuclear weapons through the UN after 2010. When you started moving forward, was there any particular response from longstanding activists or people who may have engaged in this pursuit in the past that perhaps was not supportive of the idea of taking this route to nuclear disarmament? Absolutely. There was a lot of people that were concerned that doing anything without the nuclear armed states would not be effective. Some worried that it would let them off the hook, that it would just add obligations onto non-nuclear armed states that have already committed never to develop nuclear weapons. Some articulated concerns that it could undermine the non-proliferation treaty or the comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty or other international agreements that had already been reached on nuclear weapons or that it would detract attention away from the pursuit of elimination of existing arsenals. 
So yeah, there was there was definitely critique from the nuclear armed states, from nu- nuclear supportive governments, but also from activists in the anti-nuclear movement, for sure. How did this roll forward? What were some of the initial goals and what were some of the benchmarks that were met in the process of moving forward towards this ban? Well, one of the first things that we put concerted effort into was really educating a new generation of diplomats and government officials and also activists on the humanitarian and environmental impacts of nuclear weapons. Of course, there'd been a lot of work on this done in the 1960s and the 1980s, but new generations of actors working on these issues weren't as familiar, I think, with a lot of that work. And there was a lot of scope to update studies on environmental impact and impact on economics and on food production and on climate as well in the context of what we now know about climate change. So really amplifying a lot of that material, bringing together UN agencies in a way that hadn't been done before as well, the UN Environment Protection Program, the UN programs dealing with protection of civilians and human rights and the International Committee of the Red Cross. So having all of these bodies as humanitarian aid agencies or environment programs speak together to say that there was no possible way we could grapple with the effects of nuclear war or even a single nuclear weapon detonation and what impacts that would have on our global society. That was where we put our attention initially because that was what really turned the tide for landmines and cluster bombs was focusing on humanitarian impacts, moving the debate away from abstract discussions about military necessity and geopolitical strategic needs and things like that, and really focusing on human beings. And so we moved through three conferences, global conferences hosted by Norway, Mexico, and Austria on the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons. At the same time, we were holding regional meetings around the world to bring together diplomats and other government officials to talk about these humanitarian impacts issues, but also to talk about what legal and policy lines that they could take globally and building up a global community of actors that was really ready to take action on this issue in the face of pressure from the nuclear armed states and from naysayers that we were contending with as well. Was there a particular turning point in this process where you suddenly saw that you were going to be able to get the acceptance in the United Nations, that initial vote that was taking place? Yes. In 2016, the UN held a open-ended working group, which is, you know, kind of UN jargon for a group that was convened in Geneva at the UN. And it was open to all states to participate in. The nuclear armed states boycotted it as they boycotted each of the humanitarian impact conferences before then. And the sort of the nuclear supportive states or the nuclear umbrella states are sometimes called the ones that include U.S. nuclear weapons in their own security doctrines. So that's NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, as well as Japan, South Korea, and Australia. They all did participate in this meeting but in some senses were there almost as proxies for the nuclear armed to speak out against the treaty. And it, But this meeting in 2016 was really the first time that the treaty was openly discussed as a major point of policy concern, as something that 
countries in the world wanted to pursue. And it was at this meeting where there was a vote in August 2016 around whether or not this would be agreed upon in the outcome of this meeting to note that this treaty was something that the majority of countries wanted to pursue. And there was overwhelming support for including it at this meeting. So that was sort of when many of us realized that this was definitely going to happen. It then went to the UN General Assembly, where it was voted on in October and December, a resolution to initiate negotiations. And once all of that was in place, once countries had gone on the record as saying they wanted to develop this treaty, we knew there was no coming back from that moment. On July 7, 2017, 122 countries at the United Nations adopted the treaty. You were there. I was fortunate enough to be able to interview Heidi Huttner, who was in the room where it happened, when it happened, less than an hour after it did happen. So I have that captured in terms of the excitement. But what was the sense of history or accomplishment, or was it just, well, this is done, now we're on to the next? No, it was, a, it was absolutely an, a historic achievement. It was amazing to be a part of that in that room. There was definitely a sense of of celebration, not of self-celebration that we did this, but gratitude from governments towards the activists and vice versa. Celebration of the Hibakusha, the atomic bomb survivors, many of whom were in the room with us. Setsuko Thurlow, who's a Hiroshima survivor, gave some of the closing remarks and just moved the entire room to tears of all these governments and all these activists in noting that this moment was really a turning tide against nuclear weapons. And more broadly than that, a moment in history where the majority of countries in the world stood up to power to change something, to change international law, to stake a claim that this is an immoral situation that we've let fester collectively for decades and we're not going to tolerate it anymore and we're going to take action. And the implications of that for international relations beyond the nuclear question, I think, is yet unknown, but will surely have impacts in ways that we can't imagine right now. In that July meeting, there were 122 countries that adopted the treaty, but then it had to go to a ratification process. What is the difference between the two and why did it have to go to this next step? So the adoption of the treaty at the UN is a matter of government saying that they support the treaty. They want it to exist in international law. The ratification process is a national process that each country has to go through. It's different for every single country. It depends on how their national legislature works. For most countries, it's a process of taking the treaty to parliament, having a debate and going through what it means, adjusting any national laws to make sure that the country can be in full compliance with the treaty once it's entered into force and making sure that the government is ready to implement it in full. And then it has to go through to the executive offices of the government, whatever the configuration might be in the country. So that's usually a process of being signed and endorsed by a president or a prime minister or however the structure works. And then that is brought to the UN 
to be deposited. So there's many, many steps that most countries have to go through. For some, it only took a few months to complete that process. For some countries that were champions of the treaty, it took several years to go through all of the legislative processes. And there are still many that uh, have been very committed to the treaty from the beginning that are in that process. And so even though that now we have achieved the 50th ratification for the treaty to enter into force, there's still going to be many more that join the treaty after this point. While this process was going on in the countries, what was the core group of activists who had been such motivators for the treaty to take place? What did your work consist of during that time? We had several campaigners that were focused on entry into force efforts. So um, many of the activists that were within the countries that we knew wanted to join the treaty would be regularly meeting with, calling up their government officials, making sure the process was on track, speaking at different debates and making public commentary on the treaty, etc., to help facilitate the process along and helping us to secure the 50 Within the countries that do not yet support the treaty, so that's the NATO countries and other nuclear supportive countries and nuclear armed states, our activists there have been engaged more at the city level, getting city councils and mayors to say that they support the treaty and calling on the federal government to join. So we've had an ICANN Cities Appeal that has taken off across the United States and Canada, across Europe and in Australia and many other places. We've also been working with parliamentarians at the national level so that we can have debates within parliament and on the public stage to counter the official government perspective on the treaty. And we've also been working to reach divestment on nuclear weapons. So this is another lesson learned from banning landmines and cluster bombs, but also the work that's been going on around fossil fuels and other industries that are destructive to society and human health and the environment um, is to remove money and economic incentive out of the companies that produce these weapons or these products that cause. So we've been working with banks and pension funds and other institutions, financial institutions around the world. We've had great success with that. Some of the biggest pension fund holders in Europe, for example, in the Netherlands and Norway, um, have already withdrawn funds from nuclear weapon producers. Many of them have cited the treaty in doing so, saying this will soon be international law. Um, and so we're moving our money now. And we can imagine that once the treaty has entered into force next January, that work will become even more amplified as we go forward. Have you been working along with the group Don't Bank on the Bomb, or is that running parallel with the program you have? It's a project of ICANN. Um, it's run by one of ICANN steering group's members, Pax, which is a Dutch peace organization. So they're the ones that have uh, run the Don't Bank on the Bomb project, and that is completely integrated with ICANN's work. About two weeks ago, when the ratification process stood at 47 countries, Donald Trump sent out a letter from the United States urging countries that supported the United Nations Treaty to ban nuclear weapons to ditch the pact before it reached 50 ratifications. How did you first learn about that piece of communication? And what was the response to it that you heard back from the countries that received it? Yeah, that was uh, quite an unprecedented move as far as we know. Um, there was a lot of shock and dismay 
It got covered by Associated Press and then picked up by news agencies around the world. And there was a lot of concern from governments about what this meant for the U.S.'s approach towards state sovereignty, which it claims to have a strong commitment to. And yet, in a very patriarchal, patronizing, and really racist way, the U.S. government was telling all of these countries of Latin America and Africa and Southeast Asia that they had made a strategic error in joining this treaty, as if they didn't know what they were doing in negotiating this treaty and adopting it, and now sending it through this intensive ratification process of their national legislation. So really outrageous behavior and really signaling how frightened the nuclear armed states are of this treaty. The U.S. has been the most public in its pressure on states not to join, but we know that other countries have also engaged in pressure against governments to, first it was not to give any credence to the humanitarian debate around nuclear weapons, then it was to not support the establishment of negotiations of the treaty, then it was to not join the negotiations of the treaty, then it was to not adopt the treaty, and then it was to not join the treaty. So this, there's just been the same pressure at every turn. And at every turn, these governments have said, no, we're doing this. You cannot stop us from doing what is morally and ethically correct and taking a real stand against all of this pressure. And we can see in the ways that the nuclear armed states talk about this treaty, the way they try to claim that it won't have any bearing on them, that it won't be binding on them, that it won't create international customary law as if they can just decree that themselves. It really shows that they know that the normative effects of this treaty, regardless of whether they sign or ratify it themselves, are going to be immense. We have seen this work with, for example, the Landmines Treaty, which the United States has still not ratified, and yet the U.S. under Obama declared that it would stop using landmines other than in the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea, and it stopped selling landmines. It stopped manufacturing and selling cluster bombs as well, even though it's never ratified that treaty. So we can see the ways that over time, the stigmatization impacts that international law has, even on countries that refuse to be bound by the treaty are still very, very impactful. And the thing that's really important to recognize with this treaty and with any other is that these changes are not immediate. So for the detractors that we spoke of earlier that said that it wouldn't have any impact if the nuclear armed states weren't part of it, they're only thinking about immediate near-term cause effect day one to day two. And that's really short-sighted um, and doesn't really reflect the way that social change works, which is a very iterative process, which will be met constantly by pushback and has to be defended and built upon. And it's really something, it's a collective project that will be ongoing for many, many years. There's been no illusions that this treaty eliminates nuclear weapons overnight, but it, the idea that it won't have any impact on the possession of nuclear weapons is just as farcical because really what we're looking at is long-term change and we cannot predict what path this will take in the future. But we know that having this tool now in our toolbox puts us in just such a much more powerful position than we were before July 2017. I first became aware of your work because I was on two different Zoominars last week and was very impressed with what you were talking about and the specificity. 
on Saturday, October 24th, I was watching you and you were saying, well, we've had 49 ratifications so far and the 50th is imminent. I'm actually checking my cell phone. And I thought that was hyperbole. I thought that was going, yeah, well, you know, 10 days, two weeks, something like that. And less than an hour after it finished, all of a sudden, I got an email, I got a text, I got calls, I got Facebook, everything. And we were all dancing the happy dance. What was it like for you? Definitely also dancing the happy dance. Um, it was quite a stressful few days building up to that. Some of my ICANN friends and colleagues were in constant communication with the final few missions that we knew were coming through in those two days. And they were really hoping that this would happen on Saturday the 24th because that is United Nations Day. And so UN Day marks the day that the UN Charter entered into force. And so to have the 50th ratification of the TPNWs, which would trigger the entry into force of that treaty on the same day that the UN Charter entered into force was extremely symbolic. So they've worked very hard in the ICANN team and um, at the government mission to make that happen. And it was just such a celebration when it did happen. And we managed to have a campaign-wide Zoom call that <laughs> evening. So for some people, it was the middle of the night. For some people, it was first thing in the morning. For us in North America, at least it was the evening. So yeah, it was a good time to, to get together as a campaign and, and mark this achievement. And then to immediately start planning for the entry into force and, and what that will mean um, moving forward in January. I want to get to that point. But before that, what was the media response that the ratification actually had? What was the impact? I know I have my perspective from the United States, but what did you see? Globally, it got quite a bit of media coverage. And I think most of it, I would say, was positive about this. There's, of course, still the tendency for a lot of the mainstream outlets to give weight to the nuclear armed states commentary. So reaching out to the State Department or, or others, depending on where they're based, to get their comments on the treaty. But what we've seen over time, I think, is a shift from the media. For the most part, this is not 100%, but I've noticed a shift from kind of skeptical reporting on this idea to now an acknowledgement that this is international law. This has to now be contended with. This is no longer pie in the sky. The nuclear armed states didn't actually manage to shut it down and prevent it from happening. They didn't manage to prevent it now from entering into force. Now it's something they're going to have to deal with. And so a lot of the media, I think, is, is slowly getting there and recognizing this fact. At the same time, of course, there's still the fact that a lot of mainstream media is is very corporatized and very tied to government interests in many cases. And so there's still a lot of incentive to play down the possible impacts that this treaty would have. But we're seeing more and more journalists interested in this and kind of astonished by it. On January 22nd, when it moves into effect, when it moves into force of law, what does that mean and what are the preparations that you and the others are going through now to get ready for that? So what that means is that it will now be legally binding on all of the states that have ratified it. From there, the sort of normative impacts that I discussed earlier will become even more amplified because once this is officially international law, then it takes on that life of its own in a way that, that other treaties do. 
What we're going to be focused on is, of course, marking the event with celebration, getting as much media coverage as, as we can, but also highlighting the this treaty within the nuclear armed states and, the, and within the other governments that support nuclear weapons, making sure that the public is aware of this treaty and of their own government's positions around nuclear weapons. And this treaty gives us an opportunity to take what are often abstracted conversations about nuclear weapons and really be clear that if your government is not part of this treaty, then it's saying nuclear weapons are okay. It's accepting that nuclear weapons exist. There's nowhere to hide anymore once this treaty is in force. And so taking that message to as many different countries as possible will be part of our efforts. After the treaty enters into force, also one of the things that will happen is a meeting of states parties will convene within one year. And so we'll be working with states parties to prepare for that meeting. They're going to have some decisions to take then around certain provisions that were in the treaty that they set up to discuss once they start convening as states parties, once it's into force. So it'll be a lot of that kind of work going on too. But for the public work, I think we're very keen to, to make sure people know that this, this is a real thing that their governments now have to grapple with. What are the changes? What are the specifics that are prohibited by the treaty? It is unlawful under this treaty to develop nuclear weapons, to possess them, to test them in any form, to use them or to threaten to use them, to deploy them. It's also unlawful to assist or encourage any other country in, in any of those activities. So that is particularly important for those, for example, within NATO that are part of the NATO nuclear war planning group. If a NATO state were to join, they wouldn't be able to be part of that group. They would need to renounce nuclear weapons and not facilitate the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons in any way. It's also relevant for the NATO states that host U.S. nuclear weapons on their soil. If one of them joined the treaty, they would have to get rid of those nuclear weapons. Even though they don't themselves possess them, they would still have to remove them from their territory. It could have implications as well for transit of nuclear weapons through other state territories or docking on submarines and things like that. So there's all kinds of ways that this treaty can also impact international relations and the sort of commonplace things that people aren't even aware that are going on in the world in terms of the movement and the active deployment of nuclear weapons that happens 24-7. So we'll have to grapple with all of that moving forward too. With the work that's required to move this forward, what, if anything, might listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, who literally are around the world in 123 countries, what might they do to help support this and help you get this treaty into force even further? Well, I think if you're in a nuclear arms state, definitely the work around pushing for abolition is extremely key. So we have, as I described earlier, the ICANN Cities Appeal. We have a parliamentary pledge that you can get politicians to sign up to. In the U.S., it's called the Congressional Pledge. So doing that kind of work, doing the divestment work, but also getting involved in other kinds of activism against nuclear weapons, whether that's speaking at universities or 
town halls or writing op-eds or going to nuclear weapon facilities and doing protests and education around that is really, really key. There's a lot of this work that's ongoing already, of course, and has been for decades. And so this is a moment with this treaty to really amplify a lot of that work and to engage in it and connect it up to the other work that's going on right now around the world against other structures of violence. There's a lot of ways to connect the anti-nuclear movement to the movement to mitigate climate change and to preserve ecology and prevent further loss of biodiversity. There's ways to connect the anti-nuclear movement up to the movement, for example, in the U.S. to abolish police and prisons and to end gun violence. All of these actions that are fundamentally about needing to invest in care and well-being and health and education as opposed to tools and technologies of violence are completely compatible with the anti-nuclear movement. And I think this is a really energizing moment of this activism that we see around the United States, but also in many, many other countries right now that we can really connect up and make sure that our work is supportive and integrated and looking ahead to a future that works for as many people on the planet as possible, which nuclear weapons speak directly against. If people would like to have support materials, or if there's a handbook, some of the talking points that have been used and could easily be picked up and integrated by someone who really wants to get involved in this, is there material available? And if so, where can they find it? Yes, the ICANN website is your best place to look. It's ICANNW.org. That has a lot of different materials, publications, pamphlets, handouts, and breaks down information about the treaty in a really accessible way. Um, it's also where you can find all the information about the city's appeal. So that's at cities.icanw.org. We have a study out on the ways that universities in the United States are connected to producing nuclear weapons. That's at universities.icanw.org. So there, yeah, there's a lot of material out there on this, on the ICANN website. Anything you can think of that we haven't covered that you'd like to add at this point? I think the main message for people is really that with this treaty, as with so much else that we are confronting right now, I think one of the most important things we need to hold on to and really tell ourselves every day, because it's easy to forget, is that what's possible in the world is really only limited by our own imaginations. We're told over and over again by the powerful, so-called powerful, by the elite, by the ones that are profiting from our current system, that this is the way things are, and this is the way things work, and this is the way things will always be. And we just have to accept it, and we can kind of tinker around the edges to try and make it a little bit better here and there, but fundamentally, this is it, this is our world. And we need to reject that. All social movements throughout history, any of the changes that we've achieved for social justice have been from people that have refused to accept that, have refused to accept the idea that this is just the way things are. And this is what we've done with this treaty is refuse to accept that. And it's what everyone working for social justice around the world is saying. And we really need to hold that in our hearts and our minds at all times, that we don't have to accept what we're told is possible. We invent what is possible. You make my heart feel very good. 
Ray Atchison, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for the work you have been doing for all these years. And of course, that extends out to the entire ICANN, United Nations, whatever the groups are, whatever the individuals are who have worked on it. And especially thank you for this very thorough understanding of a very important moment in our history and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. Ray Atchison. They are Director of Disarmament at the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which is the world's oldest feminist peace organization, and also a member of the steering group of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN. They has published two books since our interview, 2021's Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy, which offers a first-hand account about the work of activists and diplomats to outlaw nuclear weapons and challenge the nuclear orthodoxy. And this year, 2022, they published Abolishing State Violence, A World Beyond Bombs, Borders, and Cages, which analyzes the connections between police, prisons, surveillance, borders, war, nuclear weapons, and capitalism, and highlights the ongoing organizing efforts for their abolition. As for the TPNW, there are currently 91 signatories and 68 states' parties. If you want the details, we will have a link to the ICANN breakdown of the countries and where they currently stand. And the TPNW first meeting of states' parties, which Ray referred to, took place in June 2022 in Vienna, Austria. That was where they successfully adopted the Vienna Declaration and the 50-point Vienna Action Plan. We'll link to that as well. The second meeting of states' parties will take place from November 27 to December 1st in New York, with Mexico serving as president. Activists, Activists shout out, shout out, shout out. There's a great article for you to check out in Newsweek this week on Mary Olson's work with Gender and Radiation Project. The writer did an excellent job of encapsulating the story and hitting all the important points. We will link to it, of course, on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 591. You can also check it out by going to genderandradiation.org. We will have a link up to a video on the website for If You Love This Planet, an interview with Dr. Helen Caldicott, that, where she provides yet another primer on what we need to know about nuclear in order to have an appropriate response. Nuclear Energy and Information Services Night with the Experts will have Dave Kraft discussing Illinois' forgotten nuclear legislative agenda. In the spring of 2022, NEIS conducted four one-hour briefings for Illinois legislators and officials on a variety of important topics relating to nuclear power and waste in Illinois suggesting the need for legislation and action on the part of the state on issues not dealt with in previous legislations. This special edition of Night with the Experts will discuss in detail these legislative suggestions, and Dave is always excellent in being clear, concise, and really accessible in what he says. That will be on Thursday, October 20th at 7 p.m. Central Time via Zoom. Of course, we'll have the link. And last February, right after the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons published a quick guide 
on how to deal with nuclear anxiety. It included tips on how to mindfully talk to people about the catastrophic consequences of nuclear war and what to do if you are feeling anxious about nuclear war. And let's face it, if we're paying attention, there's probably a level of anxiety going on. You can take a look at this piece by going to the ICANW.org website dealing with nuclear anxiety, or we've got it on the website, but that doesn't surprise you, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 591. And Physicians for Social Responsibility are urging you to take action. Write today and urge your representative or senator to support an expansion of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, which is H.R. 5338 and Senate Bill 2798. The shortcut for support is a link to a petition that they've got, and we will link to that, of course, same website as always. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 18, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, that's N-I-R-S, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Ed Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists, Dr. Paul Dorfman, GenderAndRadiation.org, STLToday.com, Yahoo.com, MarianneWildArt.wordpress.com, NEIS.org, that's Nuclear Energy Information Service in Chicago, TheBulletin.org, Nuclear Resistor, CNN.com, APNews.com, NBCNews.com, TheHill.com, OneEarth.org, EnviroNews.tv, CGTN.com, Mainichi.jp, Reuters.com, Economist.com, TheSun.co.uk, ForesightDK.com, MontelNews.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks as always to Linda Penn-Scunter of Beyond Nuclear for her weekly nuclear hot seat, Hot Story. Want a shortcut to making certain you never miss out on a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat? It is so easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, put in your first name and email address, and every week you will get one email, that's it, just one, that will contain the link and a short description of the show's contents. Or if you're a regular listener to podcasts, sign up on your favorite podcast platform. Either way, you'll make certain that you have the latest in nuclear news every week. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi, Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. Just mention the name of the show, put in the website, and if you can throw in a couple of names too, that's really appreciated. Now, if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send that in an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help, especially at this time. So anything you can do, we will really appreciate your support. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that as Albert Einstein said, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones.
Let's hope it doesn't get to that point. Because there you have it. This has been your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.